Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey everyone, welcome or welcome back to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you into our world of financial planning and financial markets and what has been going on in the past week. So, Matthew, good morning to you. Good morning, Mark. I know we have a full slate this morning on the podcast. We do. Yeah, probably a little longer than normal, so we apologize for that, but we'll try to get through it as quickly as possible so we don't take up too much of your time. So as always, we'll take the first few minutes to recap the performance for the month and the year of the major indexes that we track. And these numbers are as of the market close on July 22nd, and the data is from Coifin. S&P 500 index is up 5.67% for the month and up 1.5% for the year. The Dow up 4.62% for the month and down 5.21% for the year. The NASDAQ up 6.44% for the month and up 19.32% for the year. The IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 index is up 3.44% for July and down 10.6% for the year. So still double digits on those small caps. Yeah, still yeah. double digits on the small caps. They can come back quicker than most of the oh, large cap yeah. companies, though, so I oh, keep yeah. our eye on that. Uh, the Vanguard International ETF, ex-United States, is up 6.16% for the month and down 6.27% for the year. The three-month T-bill yielding 0.13%, the two-year Treasury yielding 0.15%, and the 10-year Treasury yield sitting at 0.6%. So we went positive on the S&P for the year, Matt. One and a half, huh? Yeah. I know that that was kind of crazy for people to see that after what we went through in February and March, but absolutely it goes um, back to your comments. You know, the stock market's not the economy and the economy's not the stock market. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, for disciplined investors that hung in there through that not so fun time, I think that, you know, they've been rewarded for that. Especially. And then if you look at, uh, the performance of the tech heavy NASDAQ 100, you know, pretty crazy, pretty good there too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Very so Q2 earnings season is underway. We had some big companies like Tesla and Microsoft report uh, last night. Banks were last week. Bank, banks were last week, and we're going to continue uh, throughout today. And then mostly next week is going to be you the know, bulk of the it, bulk I would say, listeners. So yeah, middle of next week. We'll keep everyone updated on that. Um, so there were reports that the biotech company, Matt Moderna, is ramping up trials for a COVID-19 vaccine. I heard about that. And a hopeful note from Dr. Anthony Fauci, uh, who's the government's leading infectious disease expert, uh, said that a vaccine might be available before year end. Um, so that kind of helped propel stock stocks higher last week. Yep. Um, Optimism was there. Yeah. And I know that there's more companies involved now that are trying to develop a vaccine as well. So I think AstraZeneca is one. I think I Pfizer is another. Yeah, so. I even heard J and J like a couple of weeks ago was in on this too. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot of a lot of hands in the cookie jar right now. Multiple. Yeah, and um, you know, listeners, we're not going to give you any specific recommendations on any one of those names. I would just say, you know, tread carefully if you're trading on, you know, the hopes of a home run with a vaccine with one specific company. I can just say that that is and that could be a very risky proposition. Yeah. Would you agree with that, Mark? Yeah. 
Um, Congress is finalizing another stimulus bill, Matt. Uh, I think it's nicknamed the Heroes Act. Correct. They're still debating it. They're in the final stages, I hear. And we got some more clarification yesterday that uh, on unemployment benefits, they're going to keep increased unemployment benefits as of right now on the way the bill stands. Um, Instead of $600 a week extra, it's going to be $400 a week extra. And that's going to be through the end of December. Of this year. Yes. yes so sir. if it passes, that's how it's going to be as of right now. But still, that's up for debate. I got I to gotta share with listeners that uh, behind the scenes, uh, Mark, um, his guesstimate was exactly this. I think so, I said it on the podcast. Oh, actually, yeah. It's timestamped yeah. then officially. Yeah, timestamped. So uh, he uh, pr- he uh, predicted listeners that it was going to go from six to four hundred. I don't like predicting, but I yeah, I got that one. You got that one. It makes me happy. I have to give credit where credit is due. <laughs> Um, the last thing in terms of, you know, big news and current events, Matt, is the Biden campaign came out with their tax proposal last week or the week before. I can't remember which one, but Correct. we got some more clarification on that. I just want to go through a couple bullet points for people. Um, so his proposal aims to raise taxes on upper income earners, and that's generally defined as those earning more than $400,000 a year. And he's going to do it in a variety of ways, including increasing the top tax bracket from 37% back to 39.6% for those with incomes above 400,000, phase out itemized deductions, and it would be an equivalent of approximately 1.2% tax rate increase on earners earning more than 400,000. Okay. Uh, a phase out of the qualified business income deduction for taxable incomes above 400,000, increase in the long-term capital gains rate and qualified dividend tax rate to 39.6% on income above a million dollars. Boo. <laughs> and uh He's going to bring the 12.4% social security tax back for all income above 400,000 as well. Um, so his proposal would also establish a $8,000 tax credit for childcare expenses. Uh, I can get behind that. Yeah. Make tax benefits uh, to divine contribution plans more uniform and expand the premium assistance tax credit for buying health insurance from an exchange. Um, and then he would increase the top corporate tax rate from 21% to 28%. So I know there's a lot to kind of unpack there, but I just wanted to you know, go through that for people just so they have a general understanding of what the bones of the tax plan are. Yeah, well, at least he wasn't proposing any changes to the um, estate tax. Yeah, I haven't heard anything like that yet. Um, it could be still in the cards, but at least from what I read, I didn't hear anything about that. So, well, these things change quickly. Yeah, they change very quickly. So we just gotta, you know, keep an ear out for for that. So moving on to tweets, articles, and research for the week that caught our eyes. Um, first thing that I saw, Matt, was a quote from Tony Isola on his blog or excuse me, his blog, A Teachable Moment. This was on July 7th. Um, And he said, sorry, I'm just getting my notes here. He said, many Americans fret about their retirement number. They're Mm. missing the big picture. Without health, worrying about wealth becomes a meaningless time suck. Yep. And I think this is pretty intelligent. Tony makes a connection in this blog post to people who choose to be unhealthy and people who have poor financial wellness. And they're both really hard to change, I think. 
And, you know, I think this is more important now than ever because of this pandemic we're all living through. And, you know, it's just my opinion that we as a population need to start living healthier lives in order, you know, to enjoy the fruits of our labor in retirement. Right. Absolutely. Um, So COVID has taught all of us, I think, that we need to do a better job as a population with our health and money. And all of us need to, you know, do a better job to help our friends and our neighbors all work together towards this goal. You know, I think it's on people like you and me to to help people that are struggling financially and what they can do, just one thing they can do to increase their financial wellness. And that's all it takes. And it's all got to, you know, be in this together. I love it. I, I'm glad you brought this to the uh, to listeners. Yeah. So again, repeat that, the blog and where they can find this at. Um, so on our website, uh, if you go to the podcast tab, this is on www.jossipwealthmanagement.com. Hover over the podcast tab and click show notes. I've linked to this article Excellent. and the following articles that we're going to discuss in Excellent. the show notes. So the next thing was a follow-up from our conversation last week, Matt, about what colleges use their endowment money for. Okay. And one of our listeners and a good friend of mine, Chad, brought this article to me after listening to the episode last week. And it makes some interesting points that we were discussing last week. So I just wanted to read a few sections, um, you know, from this article, which I forgot to print out. So I'm not going to read a few sections from it, but it's an article titled uh, Moritz Family Still wants a state reopened to bargain with Ohio State over endowment. Interesting. And this was, again, this is on our website, so everyone can go and read it. And this was by the Columbus Dispatch on June 22nd. But pretty much, Matt, it talks about how, you know, um, he donated money to Ohio State. Okay. And it talks about how, and again, I don't know what's true and what's not true, how for about you know, 90% of the funds that were donated weren't going towards what they were supposed to be going. So they were designated funds. They were designated for scholarship funds. Okay. But they weren't going towards scholarship funds. That's an issue. Yeah. So they're in a a legal battle right now to open back the estate up. Um, Ohio State claims that they are going towards scholarship funds now and that, you know, it wasn't as clear cut Ohio State says is is just that, but it's just an example of, you know, the battles between people giving money to universities and what they're actually doing with that money. Well, yeah, I think it also goes to a form of what I would call accountability, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, you, you know, you make that gift to any sort of charitable organization, whether it's, you know, higher education or some sort of other nonprofit. I think that there's a desire for people to kind of see through or their families, if it's a bequest upon passing, that it was utilized in the way that it was meant for. Right. And, you know, I think the nonprofits that um, in general that do it really right are the ones that follow up uh, with the families after those bequests and say, hey, this is the impact that your family made. Right. And I think that that those nonprofits are learning that, you know, with those follow ups, they might end up getting the family to do additional giving or bequests. Right. Yeah. If there's some more transparency with it or follow ups. Yeah. So um, that's uh, that's interesting. Yeah. Chad, thanks for thanks for sending that in. Yeah. It just, you know, this article just adds, you know, it's another example of, you know, the quote unquote mismanagement of of funds of an endowment or a gift to it a just, university. The, the perception just feels like a black box. Yeah. Just kind of feels that way. Yeah, it does. Things. It does. So if anyone wants to read the, the whole article, um, 
check out check it out on our website we link to it on our website so um sorry i didn't bring that with me to bring to that's all right but chad notes. hey thanks for bringing it to our attention and listeners you know if you if you hear us talk about a topic and you want to send a follow-up you know article or research piece that you come across we would encourage you to do so you can just send those in um send them to mark so mm-hmm. it's mark at jessupwealthmanagement.com is his email address yeah yeah and the last thing I had was another follow-up from last week on your comment you made, Matt, about investors oh, saying they're going to wait for a pullback before getting into the market. Uh-huh. And this, you know, the following points were uh, from a short blog post written by Michael Batnick on July 18th. And someone commented on one of his YouTube videos and said the following in response to him talking about trying to time the market. So this uh, viewer said, I waited six years for the Dow to fall back to 18,000 support. It finally dipped to 18K and I still didn't buy. So then Michael goes on to say, it's reasonable in theory to tell yourself that the market is too high and to wait for an attractive entry point. The problem is very few people are able to do this in real life. The more balls you take or strikes in this case, the harder it becomes to swing. If you've been sitting in cash for too long, the only way to get back in is to do so with a plan and slowly over time. I agree. So I thought it was just timely because I know you mentioned that last week, but I think that he said it better than anyone else is, again, like we've said a thousand times over on this podcast with anything, you got to have a plan. That's right. And so, you know, if you are one of those individuals listening to our podcast and you have a significant portion of your liquid net worth in cash... You know, this is maybe something you want to be hyper vigilant to. Yeah, just think about, you know, developing a plan so you take your emotion out of it. Yeah. Yep. So I'm glad you brought it back up. Turn it over to you. I got a couple good ones. Listeners, I think you're going to like uh, what I'm bringing to the table this week. So, first one is it's a chart and it's from uh, Sean McLaughlin, and he's a senior market strategist at Trade Ideas and the chief option strategist at All Star Charts. He had a tweet mark on July 11th, and here's what it's about. We have heard a lot of comparisons between the late 90s tech run leading to the tech bubble of 2000, which popped over the uh, preceding then two years, to the tech run up that we're seeing right now. Mm -hmm. Well, what this uh, gentleman did is he overlaid the charts of the NASDAQ 100 leading up to 2000 and where it's at right now in 2020. And this chart listeners will be on our show notes. Mm -hmm. And when you see it, it illustrates that from the days uh, from starting date. uh, So right now um, it run about almost 1200 days, Mm -hmm. okay? It shows that in 2000, the NASDAQ over that almost uh, 1200 days ran 900 hundred and twenty nine percent and when you overlay 2020 to give a proper comparison mark it's run 147 mm-hmm. percent i think that it's easy then to say the comparison is not apples to apples and that we can officially put that to bed with this chart as of right now do you agree or disagree yeah no i do agree with that i, I mean if Listeners, go and check this chart out because I think it's a pretty interesting one. I mean, back in 2000, it was virtually vertical on the graph, and we're not anywhere close to that right now. Um, 
it's just one of those things where, you know, people always say, well, it can't go higher. It can't go higher. Tech can't go higher. The market can't go higher. Yes, it can. <laughs> oh, yeah. Anything can happen. Anything can go higher. So oh, it's yeah. just one of those things that, you know, it gets a lot of attention because it's hyped up in the media. Is tech overbought? It can't possibly go any higher. That's why I oh, wanted yeah. to show that chart. Oh, yeah. It could go a lot higher. But I wanted to show that chart. <laughs> it could go a lot higher. So, so And this chart proves it. So Yeah, I just I think you're going to continue to have people, you know, speculate that they are apples to apples comparisons. And this chart disproves that. Mm -hmm. Okay. Next one I got listeners is a chart from Helena uh, Meisler. She's of realmoney.com. She posted this chart I'm about to discuss on July 18th, listeners. And the chart shows the 20-day moving average of the NYSE composites volumes. And the point that Helena was making is this. She posted this chart and said, and I quote, here is proof volumes rise on declines and falls on rallies. So listeners, if you remember back to mid-February through the market low of March 23rd, Mark and I were talking a lot about how you know trading volumes were extremely high, going back and matching those extreme levels from the great financial crisis. And what she did is she's showing this chart, and to me, I agree with her statement, proof mm -hmm. that, you know, Volumes rise and declines and fall on rallies. Yeah. And I wanted to see, Mark, if you want to have any comments for the listeners. No, I, I do agree with that. Can you just go over kind of volume for, you know, people that might be new to it and what that, you know, what is what is volume and what does it mean? That's a, that's a great yeah. way to kind of do the basics. So listeners, what I'm talking about is the amount of shares traded in a given day on the NYSE. Mm -hmm. And this chart goes back to uh, 2007. So it's going to capture uh, the great financial crisis. And what you're going to see is in times of um, short-term market weakness, volumes tend to go up. Mm -hmm. And with price discovery in the market, and you and I talked about this in March, listeners, what happens in peaks of short-term stress is there has to be price discovery for there to be a buyer and a seller. Mm -hmm. And what happens in times of stress is those prices go down mm -hmm. and the discounts get pretty wide at times. Mm -hmm. And... In March 23rd, Mark and I highlighted this on a couple of podcasts, price discovery in the market was broken. Yeah. I mean, and we highlighted Sherwin-Williams, remember that? Mm -hmm. To where um, 90 minutes approximately before the market closed in late March, there was a day where we saw Sherwin-Williams go down by 20%, and by close, it was break-even. Yeah. I mean, it was just a tremendous move in 90 minutes. Right. That's not normal price discovery. It's just not for mm -hmm. a company like that. And I'm not advocating uh, making any recommendation on the name. I'm just talking about, you know, it's not a fly-by-night company that would warrant a 90-minute move of 20%. Right. right. Right? So with that being said, this chart is really good because I think for listeners, it's going to show you that in times of stress, volatility, the amount of trading, the amount of volume of shares traded is going to spike. Mm -hmm. And that you really need to be careful making major financial decisions when that type of stuff happens. Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, in, in, in peaks, short term peaks of stress, um, you know, you're hearing the talking heads on all the financial stations. And remember, they tend to be more what the market's going to do this week, next week and next month, where listeners, a lot of your plans, assuming you have a plan in place, goes out multiple years, sometimes decades. And so. 
I just wanted to try to throw that out there as to highlight that volume and volatility tend to go up when the market's declining. Yeah, yeah, it's just that thing that, uh, you know, fear takes over and people people get nervous and, and volatility and volumes rise because people are trying to do the same thing. So, so the last thing I'll, I'll throw out there, I got one more tweet. And um, this is a tweet I saw. Um, it's it's in regards to the number of net new retail accounts across major online brokers. And this was a chart from Bloomberg uh, and JP Morgan Asset Management. Um, and the data was as of June 9th. Okay, Mark. So as of June 9th, year to date, I'll give you an example. Charles Schwab last year uh, at the same time opened up about a half a million accounts. This year, 810,000. E-Trade prior year, 51,000. This year, 463,000 new accounts. And then the other one they had was TD Ameritrade, 133,000 a year ago. And then this year, 691,000. So you're seeing a lot more, um, you know, pajama traders per yeah. se, uh, with the whole COVID, uh, a lot of, uh, newer investors in this market. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they seen, um, a tale of, of, of two markets. They saw dramatic downside movements mid February to the end of March. And they've seen the opposite of that since. And, um, the only uh, comment I'll make is that um, not all market environments are going to look like this, mm -hmm. especially since the bottom at the end of March. And I'm seeing more and more tweets, Mark, in the uh, sphere that I kind of watch on Twitter that it's almost feeling like, like the market can't go down or the market doesn't go down or and you and I both know. That is a fallacy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so what kind of comments do you want to throw out there for listeners when you see this data? Well, it's just interesting that, you know, um, you know, people have more time on their hands now. And a lot of people who are out of work are trying to, you know, figure out a way to make money. And I'm and I'm completely fine with that. But, yeah, it's just important to note that the market just doesn't go straight up. So people just got to be careful with that. But I'm all for people trying to learn and invest properly. So I like to look at things from the glass half full. And I would like to think that most of the people are doing that. Um, but then, you know, you have your speculators that there's no sports going on. So no one can bet on anything. And this is almost like a, a turning into a betters market type of thing. Yeah, the area have to be careful the, about the area that's most concerning for me for new investors is the derivatives market. And so what that means, listeners is specifically stock options. And, you know, those are very complex, very complicated. And I am seeing on Twitter, at least a lot of these newer investors, they're they're making comments on options, Mark. And that's a dangerous thing. And I just want to throw that out there that if you're a newer investor and you're playing in options, I would be extremely careful. Mm -hmm. that's, that's just the kind of the message I want to send. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll turn it back to you, my friend. Moving on to the financial planning topic of the week. This week, it comes from an article written by Blair Duquesne on her blog, The Bell Curve. So this was on July 9th, and it was titled, Don't Fall in Love with Your Stocks. So, so many times people get emotionally attached to certain stocks, and I get it. It's easy to do. However, when one stock starts to be a large weighting 
in your overall portfolio allocation, risk also rises and people need to be aware of that. And Blair does a really good job, I think, um, explaining how this happens and how to try to mitigate the risks associated with it. So she started um, an article going over a stock that has had a huge run for a decade, right? Over, you know, couple thousand percent okay so obviously when when a, a name is doing that well people want to pour more and more money into it right mm-hmm. and that's and that's fine there's no problems with that so she talks about that and you know how people get obsessed with the story so for example apple right mm-hmm. so apple's been a really good performer everyone loves their products they have the iphone they have their computers they have their uh ipads they have the apple watch AirPods, all the wearables, and they just keep going. And everyone loves their stuff, right? Okay. So people get obsessed with Apple products, and they also in turn get obsessed with Apple stock. Okay. And it starts to be an emotional problem. So Blair says, but now a lot of investors have a problem. Their portfolios are dominated by one stock and oodles of unrealized capital gains. Selling is painful in multiple ways. Not only are they letting go of a winner, but they have to pay taxes for the privilege of parting with it. It is important to not fall in love with your stocks because they won't love you back. (laughs) I like that. (laughs) I realize that letting go is painful, but losing a fortune made on an investment is even more so. The question becomes not when to sell some of the shares, but how. She says, first, take a sigh of relief because you don't need to sell every share. Your goal should be to reduce a concentrated position to an acceptable percentage of your overall portfolio. This number may be may differ depending on your time horizon, ability to save, and financial goals. So this is one of those things, Matt, where it's like, you know, we'll probably get some questions of, you know, what is the you know maximum threshold for a single security exactly and and i agree with blair that it's it really is different for everybody sure um so i don't want to throw a number out there because it really is but i think you'll you'll know when it's too much (laughs) um and she goes on and says as with most financial decisions it's important to have a plan in place avoiding regret is the trickiest part of reducing a winning position One way to minimize regret is to sell portions of your stock on a predetermined schedule. That schedule may be spread out over multiple years to avoid paying too much capital gains tax in a single year. And don't forget, you can hold on to some of the shares forever if you want. So again, this is specifically, you know, my goal here was to target people that have concentrated Concentrated stock positions. If you have, you know, if a stock is, you know, three, four, five, six percent, of your portfolio. I personally think that's fine. I don't think people need to fret about that. It's when you really start getting up into the higher double digits that, you know, yeah, your portfolio swings huge on a day-to-day basis just because of the one company. And I think that percentage could also be predicated on the actual company, the industry it's yeah. in. You know, I think that obviously plays into it as well, you know. Because uh, if you work at a, you know, you work at a smaller cap company, going to be more volatile going to be more volatile than more risk at you know a large cap company that's right so i think that's a good article to kind of mention yeah yeah um anything else before wrapping up this week matt we actually got through it in pretty good time no we did pretty good uh kept it rolling i would say uh next week we're going to record either on uh, wednesday or thursday got a lot of earnings next week as we talked about so the news flow is going to be pretty heavy next week for a lot of the s p 500 companies i think Upwards of like 30 or 35% of them report next week. So a chunk. Yeah. 
Yeah, it'll be a pretty busy week next week. But all right, well, we will leave it there for this week. And thank you, everyone, for tuning back into the 55th episode of the Independent Advisors podcast. Hope you all have a great rest of the week, a fun weekend, and we will be back with you next week. Take care, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. And also check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. Here you'll find links to every episode of The Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words, questions, and topics in the subject line to mark at jessupwealthmanagement.com, and we'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor. <laughs>